Some years ago, we made a trip with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. A moment comes, which comes but rarely in history, when we step out from the old to the new. It is fitting that at this solemn moment we take the pledge of dedication to the service of India and her people and to the still larger cause of humanity. Welcome to another episode of India Colonized. I am your host, Omar Haq, and today we have with us our first guest on Guftagu, Dr. Diniar Patel. Guftagu, meaning a light conversation, are a series of interviews with scholars and authors of the subcontinent's history. Our special and first guest today, Dr. Diniar Patel, is an assistant professor of history at the SPGN Institute of Management and Research in Mumbai. Previously, he taught in the Department of History at the University of South Carolina. He currently teaches courses on modern South Asia, the Indian Nationalist Movement and the British Empire. Most of his research has focused on the life and career of Tada Bai Naoroji, who according to Dr. Patel is arguably the most significant Indian Nationalist leader before Gandhi. Naoroji was one of the founders of the Indian National Congress. He became the first Indian to be elected into the British Parliament in 1892 and in 1906 he was the first to declare Swaraj or self-government to be the policy of the Indian National Congress. Dr. Patel received his PhD from University of Howard in 2015 and he started writing his biography on Dada Bayanaroji which was published by Howard University Press in May of 2020. Dr. Patel's academic research focuses on the Indian Nationalist Movement, Bombay, and the Parsi Zoroastrian community. He has received two Fulbright Fellowships and Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities for his research. During the course of the interview, we will be discussing with Dr. Patel his research interest, his academic and intellectual journey, and the journey of writing his first book. Through the episode, we will also talk about the life and struggle of the pioneer of the Indian Nationalist Movement and the various intrigues of the lesser-known public life of Dadabai Nauruji. Here is our conversation with Dr. Diniar Patel. Hey Diniar, uh, we are really glad to have you on our podcast today to discuss your book uh, on Nauruji. Uh, so, before we get down to discussing about the book itself, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, um, a bit about your intellectual journey and the kind of people or books and stuff that have shaped your, uh, uh, you know, that have influenced your journey over the period of time. So, first of all, thank you, Omer, for having me here. It's, uh, it's great to be on. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, my particular background. So I, I currently teach at uh, SBJN Institute of Management and Research, which is a, a business school in Mumbai. And I'm, I'm talking to you from, from Mumbai right now. Um, up until a year ago, I was teaching at the University of South Carolina. I was an assistant history, uh, history professor there. Um, and my background is actually pretty much entirely from the US. I was born and raised in the US. I, I, I'd done my uh, uh, PhD work at uh, in, in Harvard uh, in history. Um, 
but you know, throughout all that time, I also had one foot over here uh, in India, either doing research or for family and such. And you know, since since my 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 wife is is has a work here in in Mumbai, we decided to to make the, the shift here permanently last year. Um, but in in terms of uh, you know intellectual you know kind of like the intellectual trajectory leading to the book. Uh, so while I was at Harvard, I was I was very interested in doing a dissertation that focused on. Uh, both nationalism and also something to do with the Parsi community. I'm, I myself am a Parsi. I've always been interested in the, the, the history of my community. Uh, and in so many ways, Dadabai Naroji was a perfect fit um, because, you know, he was, you know, arguably the most important nationalist leader uh, before Gandhi. Um, and of course, he came from the Parsi community. But but I found more and more reasons why it would be a good idea to research him in this, uh, as I went on, in the sense that very little academic work has been done about him. Not many people know much about him aside from, you know, maybe one or two lines they learned in school that, you know, he he had, uh, you know, helped develop this concept called the drain of wealth and he, he had served in the British Parliament. But that's it. And there actually was much, much more stuff to his uh, life and, and his story than, uh, than, than just those two standard lines. Uh, so the project kind of, you know, evolved from that point onward. I mean, I, about 10 years ago, I began research at the National Archives in India, uh, which took about two years or so to go through essentially half of his papers. His papers are quite big. Um, and, you know, it, it was, you know, it, it, it was amazing just working with, with, with the actual primary sources. There. There's, there's just so much incredible historical material there. Oh, sorry. I, th I think you're on uh, mute. Sorry. Uh, so no what exactly drew you to academia in particular or, you know, to study history in academics and teach it? That's a good question, actually. <laughs> so I, I, I did not intend to become an academic. I mean, I, I in college, I had majored in international relations and I was actually thinking of going into the policy world. I actually um, taken the, the foreign service exam uh, in the U.S., um, but this was right after you know, the war in Iraq and continuing war in Afghanistan. And I, I quickly realized after working one or two years in Washington that I just didn't want to go into that. And uh, I always had a, a background interest in, in history. So even though I was doing policy work and I would, you know, have to go to the Library of Congress in order to do research, um, I always find myself researching history instead. Uh, so I, I originally intended for the history PhD to just be kind of like a break before I went into something which I thought was more practical, uh, more policy based. But, uh, you know, as PhD programs tend to do, they kind of suck you in. Um, and, you know, I, you know, it, it's academia is obviously it's, it's a very, very, very difficult field in order to make a career. Um, and, you know, I tell that to, to, to everyone who is thinking of doing a PhD. Um, it's it's difficult, especially especially since the 2008 crisis. I mean, the 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 job opportunities have shrunk incredibly, but luckily I've been able to make it work. Um, you know, uh, so I I mean I I really love what I do, uh, and I'm you know I'm I'm happy that I get to do something that really is my primary academic passion. Well, that's that's wonderful. Uh, what would you suggest for someone who's aspiring to go into academia? Uh, something that they should look out for. Yeah. Uh, particularly in history, what are the things that you would suggest that one should keep in mind? First and foremost, I mean, I, as much as I hate to say this, I, I would, you know, give a bit of a warning of just, just what it is like. You know, I mean, I, I, I mean, when you are in a PhD program, you, you are trained to be an academic, right? I mean, the, it, it is an apprenticeship, uh, apprenticeship program to make you an academic. It's, it, it's very hard to get out of a PhD program and jump into something else. 
Um, you can, and people do, and people have to do it now because there's so few opportunities in academia, but it is a jarring process. So for anyone who wants to go into any PhD program, especially in the humanities, and you know, in, you know, for example, in history, be aware of just how dire the situation is now. Um, there are very few jobs left in the US. Uh, those few jobs that are there are extremely competitive and unfortunately not always the best person gets those jobs. There are a lot of you know, prejudices and biases worked on. A lot of people consequently have, you know, who have done PhD programs in say the US or UK or, or other parts of Western Europe uh, have moved on to academic positions elsewhere in other parts of the world, like here in India uh, or China or Southeast Asia uh, or the Middle East. Uh, it's, it's becoming increasingly common as positions and resources dry up in the West. Uh, so, I mean, as much as I hate to be negative about this, I really think it's very important uh, because it, you know, getting into academia, uh, even for a PhD, it is, it is a, first of all, a multi-year commitment and potentially a lifetime commitment, uh, you know, depending on how deep you, you end up going in academia. So make sure you know what you're getting into um, and be aware of the difficulties of the job market. And, you know, if you do have connections uh, with, you know, line of work outside of academia that you had that you had before entering keep those alive uh, it's always good to to maintain a foot in, in the real world because we, we really don't know how academia is going to evolve further at least in the west it's, it doesn't look good I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry again to 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 be to you know begin that on a bit of a negative note but no, you know it, <laughs> it, 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 ha it has to be said yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Some uh, in reality check needs to be given for people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. okay. Now to talk about your book, what exactly led you from being in academia to writing a biography and of you know Dada Benaraji, uh, and also for someone who does not know Naraji and has never heard of the Dada Benaraji, how would you introduce him? someone who's hearing about him for the first time yeah yeah so um you know i'll, I'll answer your first your, your your last question first uh, in the sense that naruji is someone who i at least believe is the most important and consequential indian nationalist uh before mahatma gandhi uh but like mahatma gandhi he's also much more than just being an indian nationalist uh he was an important figure in um you know the, the political world of the british empire uh, Great Britain itself, uh, and also the development of, uh, you know, kind of like a, a global network of anti-colonialism. I mean, at the very beginning of the 20th century, you you, you really started uh, for the first time to have people who were connected in all different spheres of anti-colonial work around the world. And Naroji was one particular example. I mean, you know, he, he was interested in what was going on with, say, um, you know, African, uh, you know, African origin populations in the West Indies. Uh, he was interested in broader colonial questions affecting, say, the emerging American empire and the Philippines, what the French were doing, the longer history of, say, the, the Spanish and the Portuguese. Uh, and, you know, he was committed to a, a very broad-based liberation beyond just that for India. I mean, so he supported uh, West Indians. Uh, he supported women in their right to vote uh, in Great Britain. Uh, he was also very interested in the affairs of African-Americans. So, I mean, uh, you know, in summary, he was in, in many ways quite a, you know, an early globalist uh, in the sense of having a very capacious kind of global, um, you know, outlook on, on world affairs that, you know, where India was at the center, uh, but it was necess not necessarily uh, the on only thing. Um, in, in terms of writing a biography, I mean, so, so you know, I, I, I talked a little bit about the pitfalls of academia. Academia has all these different kind of rules and regulations, a lot of which do not make sense. 
um, but nevertheless, they are there. Uh, and one of those, uh, you know, maybe not rules, but one of those norms, at least, is that writing biography, uh, a biography, uh, is looked down upon, especially for a first book, and especially if you if you do this in, in South Asia, uh, in, the, in the field of South Asian studies, uh, South Asian history. It's changing, uh, but that attitude is quite dominant and very hard to, to push against. Uh, so, you know, someone writing a, a, a biography as their first book is not you know, it's not recommended. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I definitely got some pushback along the way, not, not, not from my advisors, but, but from other people. Uh, so there are certain inbuilt prejudices within uh, the South Asian academic community towards things like biography, because it's thought to be elite history, it's thought to, you know, kind of premise an individual over broader society, societal demographics, and there's a whole baggage uh, behind this, right, intellectual baggage, and subaltern studies, Marxist perspectives, um, but it's exciting to be part of a, 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 a trend of, of change, at least in uh, the South Asian academic community, in the sense that I know many other people now who are also writing biographies or people who have done their first books and are now uh, adopting a biographical approach for the second book. So I, I think there's a lot more receptivity towards this format now. True. Um, I mean, there are a lot of people writing biographies these days. Uh, I, I remember attending the Bangalore Literature Festival and uh, they were talking about how a lot of Indian authors are now beginning to write in biographies. I think it was uh, uh, Shriram Ramesh in discussion with Manu Pillai, uh, like how yeah. a lot of people are shifting towards discussing about biographies and how it was not the norm before. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So during your extensive research on Dadabai, what were some of the most uh, exciting and surprising facts or finds that you came across uh, doing this research? And what might have been some of the limitations, uh, your research limitations during the project? So um, the one thing that kind of answers both of those questions is the, the archival collection. Um, so the Naroji papers are kept at the National Archives in, in Delhi, um, and they con constitute about 30,000 documents. So it's, a, it's a very large collection. Um, and this material has not really been gone over much by historians, um, you know, prior to, 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 to at least when I had the chance to take a look at it. I mean, there were about one or two people before me who had really comprehensively looked over that collection. Uh, so in that sense, it was an extremely exciting opportunity to, to see something that most people had not seen before. Uh, and I found an incredible amount of interesting insights in that collection. I mean, not, even, not just big things, right? I mean, I've, I found certain big things like letters to and from Gandhi or letters to and from British prime ministers or correspondence with, uh, you know, important people who I never imagined would have been, in, you know, in touch with Nauruji. I mean, uh, anti-imperialist figures in America, uh, certain journalists, um, you know, figures writing from around the world. Uh, but the small things also, the relatively small things were as interesting and exciting. I mean, you know, Nauruji kept kept everything. Um, he he, he kept all of his incoming correspondence. So I'd, I'd find everything from like day-to-day -day receipts. Uh, you know, I'd find, uh, you know, letters from people asking for money, uh, donation slips. So you could you could really reconstruct kind of the, the, the most intricate details of his life, uh, consequently, uh, using this material. I mean, you could almost down to the day, uh, you know, kind of track what he was doing and, you know, how correspondence was coming in and coming out. And that for me was quite exciting to get that uh, kind of a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a bird's eye perspective of someone's life as it developed over a period of years. But this was also the biggest challenge in the sense that um, the Naroji papers, like, like all archival collections, 
you know, they've decayed over time and there have been losses. Um, and since material in India tends to decay faster due to weather and bad preservation techniques, uh, the damage was more accentuated. Uh, so, you know, Naroji probably start keep, started keeping a collection of papers when he was in his 20s, in the, in the, 18, mm. um, in the 1850s. Uh, and his last papers are actually, actually date, you know, pretty much until the time of his death in 1917. So, you know, there's a very broad temporal horizon for the papers to occupy. But all of almost all of the papers occur from after 1886 onward till about 1906. Uh, so only, you know, a small window of about 20 years makes up the, the vast majority of these papers. So the biggest challenge was filling in the blanks, uh, you know, having, you know, only a, a few scattered papers to cover uh, 30 years or so, and then having this mountain of material for 20. And how do you balance it out? And how do you make an even uh, biographical story with this, with this, uh, you know, uh, distribution of material? Well, um, Something that something that's always fascinated me about how people actually, uh, you know, go through the amount of efforts of going through the things in archives, the documents, the letters, try to catch the intricate detail, which which you've done so excellently. Um, so to discussing the life, uh, coming down to discussing the life of Tadabai, you describe him to be a child protege, and uh, this this is a very often asked question. But, uh, you know, how, please explain how was uh, Nauroji's life shaped by the kind of hybrid education that he received? Uh, and also, what were his kind of intellectual curiosities and influences in his early, uh, early life? He had a very interesting childhood in the sense that, you know, he, he grew up in a relatively poor family. Um, I say relative because obviously, um, if you're talking about a place like Bombay in the 1820s and 1830s, um, when we're talking about really poor people, those are people without any house, right, who are living literally day to day. Uh, he at least had a house. Um, but, you know, being a Parsi, relatively speaking, he was from the poorest segment of the community uh, in the sense that his parents were migrants to the city. Uh, they had come from Gujarat. They had most likely escaped a famine uh, in um, the areas that they lived in prior, uh, Dharampur and, and Navsari. Uh, so, you know, not very well off. Um, and um, now Ruchi was, uh, was being trained to become a priest, uh, be in, in line of a hereditary priesthood, which, you know, in Naroji's family had extended back hundreds of years. But his father passed away at a relatively young age. And, and his, his mother, who was illiterate, uh, decided to put him in school. And, uh, you know, Naroji really credited his mother uh, throughout his life for, for really making him who he was. Uh, so, you know, you were talking about, you know, even though his mother was illiterate, he, she knew um, the importance of schooling and consequently she put uh, him in um, like a patshala, you know, traditional Indian school, which probably met somewhere on a sidewalk somewhere in, in well, there probably one sidewalks back then, but on a road uh, somewhere in Mumbai. Uh, and, you know, he probably met with a few other uh, students who, like him, spoke in Gujarati uh, and they did basic math, you know, basic uh, reading, writing skills. That's it. Uh, but a little later, uh, after a few years, with, with the encouragement of the, of the Mehta in that particular uh, Patshala, Naroji's mother decided to enroll him in uh, a, a, a new experiment that had been uh, started in Bombay at, at public education, which was free. Uh, it was uh, through an organization called the Bombay Native Educational Society. And uh, Naroji was actually put into a school uh, where the medium of instruction was English. Uh, so in the 1830s, this was extremely rare, right, for any Indian to have, uh, first of all, education that was free, supported by the public, 
uh, and in English. And, you know, he was being taught by uh, Britons as well as Indians. Uh, so, you know, you have a man who is one of the poorest people in his community in Bombay now being catapulted into, uh, you know, a, a certain opportunity which was unprecedented at the time. Um, and this opportunity allowed him to really branch out into all different, folk, uh, you know, areas of study. So, I mean, we know at least from, you know, he, he was one of these people who ransacked the library of his school. He went through, you know, various different books uh, in, in his library and he, he, he read biographies. He read about certain progressive figures or uh, people involved in the abolition of the slave trade in, in Great Britain. Um, you know, he also read the, the Shahnama, uh, the, you know, the, the Persian epic. Um, so, you know, he developed disparate interests, but the one big interest in his life was mathematics. He was very good at it. Um, his metta in school had actually uh, exhibited him in public. Uh, you know, he was, you know, in an, in an era when that, that could be public ent entertainment, uh, you know, a, a kid showing off his math skills on the street. Uh, so he was good at it. And so when he went into college eventually in Elphinstone, uh, you saw through all these disparate interests, uh, his ability to excel in all different fields. I mean, so he was good in math, obviously. Uh, he was good in physics. Uh, he excelled in things like astronomy, but also things like political economy. Um, you know, he he uh, had an interest in, in economics, which was itself emerging as a more mathematical field at the time. Um, you know, he would give lectures in all sorts of things from, you know, the mechanics of an engine uh, to, you know, the importance of, of studying mathematics. So it, it really was kind of a, a bit of a polymathic tradition that uh, that he inherited uh, when he was going through Elphinstone in, in, the, in the 1840s. Oh, well, that, that is definitely a wonderful, uh, I, I mean, no wonder that he, he was called a child prodigy. But okay, so, well, reading about his life, uh, something that inspired me was his commitment to education uh, and his passion towards, uh, I mean, his commitment to his community as well. Uh, and the reformation that he wanted to bring within his community and the passion he held for education, especially women's education rights and other social political issues. So having, I mean, he, he does by the age of 30 achieve uh, laurels, which, uh, which is still surprising even in, in 2021 for someone at, at the age of 30 to achieve the laurels that he did. So yeah. help, help us understand how was he able to manage to pull all of that off under, you know, before he turned 30? It's a good question. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, he, he, I think throughout his life, he just worked very hard. I mean, uh, there were some letters that I read, which, which gave an, uh, an idea of what his work schedule was like. I mean, he, he was, he, he claimed he was a late riser. He, he, you know, he began his day by nine and, you know, he'd work until lunch and he'd, he'd actually eat, lunch standing up and then go back into work and you know exercise for a little bit and work until like one o'clock in the morning or so so he was he was definitely a workaholic um but he was also someone who who networked very well uh, wherever he was so it, at least in bombay uh in the 1840s and 1850s uh the networks that he developed had to do with um you know kind of like lines of social and religious and, and eventually political reform uh in the sense that you know, people were just starting to talk about the importance of education, not just for men, but also for women. Uh, so he was, you know, he he got to know people who were willing to fund, uh, willing to fund uh, female education, not just amongst Parsis, but amongst uh, the broader community in, in, in Bombay. Um, and, um, you know, that translated into success because, I mean, he, he really never gave up in, in anything that he did. I mean, so, you know, when he, when he started an object, he, re he really kind of took it 
all the way to the, to, to the end. So we, we know at least that when he was involved with these schools um, in, in Bombay, these uh, schools that were set up for teaching uh, girls uh, in the, 18, you know, the late 1840s and 1850s, um, he and the others who would teach uh, would you know, have to recruit students. So they'd, they'd go door to door in Bombay and, and ask uh, fathers if they could enroll their daughters in school. And this was a potentially hazardous thing because not all fathers were very open to that prospect of, of sending their their daughters to, to school, um, but it was also you know it was also an unpaid uh, thing you know, teaching in these schools, and it also had to uh, take place before your day job started. Uh, so they'd probably wake up relatively early in the morning, troop to a schoolhouse by seven, teach for about two hours, and then from that point on go on to work. Uh, so I think these habits of working hard and putting in the hours and not giving up were inculcated from a, a very early age with them. Oh, discipline. Uh, yeah. So he definitely puts a lot of painstaking efforts to establish himself uh, and the kind of reforms that he starts or the projects he starts in Bombay. Uh, but then he decides to leave all of it behind in a pursuit of what might seem like an uncertain future. Uh, so, you know, like I want to try to understand what was his thought process like while making that decision. And a second part of the question is, uh, what were the struggles that he had to go through when he came to England? Uh, how was his life like there? Yeah. So answering that question is a little difficult because we don't have much of the material uh, to, to really understand what he was thinking. I mean, that, that's part of the archival material that's been lost. Unfortunately, uh, we do know that it came as a shock uh, to most people. So, you know, in 1855, Nauruji had achieved this uh, status of being the first ever Indian appointed to uh, the position of a full professor uh, in India, in, in, you know, any government college, which was a remarkable achievement. Uh, and it seemed that his career was set and he gives it all up within the span of a few months and decides uh, he's going to go to Great Britain and instead help uh, set up a, a commercial enterprise with a few other uh, fellow Parsis in, in London and, and Liverpool. Um, so it comes as a shock uh, to most people. Why would you take on a, a line of commerce when you have this, this prestigious uh, uh, position that you've established for yourself uh, within Elphinstone College in, in, in Bombay? Uh, but one of the reasons why he does it, I mean, aside from, you know, interest in, in a commercial venture, because, you know, this commercial venture was involved in cotton and cotton was kind of the big commodity in the economy worldwide uh, in in you know by by the by the mid nineteenth uh, by by the mid mid nineteenth century, uh, but one of the other reasons why he's interested in traveling to Britain is uh, it's around this time that the uh, Indian civil service is made uh, competitive, uh, in the sense that um, you know it's a service which requires uh, uh, an examination, uh, and it's theoretically kept open for Indians. Uh, and since Nauruji had al already become interested in political affairs in, in India, uh, he thought that he would be in a good position to help mentor and tutor Indians to take this exam and hopefully enter the civil service and bring about political reform, um, which is something he actually did after 1855. I mean, um, just a few years after, uh, you know, settling in Great Britain, uh, he had at least one student under his care uh, who was prepping for the, the IC, uh, for the ICS exam. Um, and this was a, a commitment that he kept, you know, for several decades thereafter. I mean, when, whenever an Indian would want to come and take the exam, he'd kind of look after him, he'd tutor him, he'd, you know, encourage them and tell them what to do, what to not do. Um, so he's kind of taking a personal stake in the broader process of, of political involvement by going to Great Britain. So moving on, 
how was uh, how was his journey to become the first member of indian member of parliament uh in in united kingdom and you know the entire process of contesting campaigning and winning the election uh i mean obviously there were there were struggles because not only uh, he was just an indian he was a man of color and also a man representing a colonial uh colonial state so i mean it might not be surprising to us in this day and age when we have a lot of people of indian origin taking positions in the uk uh, parliament and even the cabinet now but for someone in his time uh, how surprising is this uh, idea i mean he is obviously the first so uh, what was the kind of process and how was this different how did england receive this uh, as you know having the first indian as an, an mp in the parliament Yeah it's 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 quite a fascinating story in the sense that you know we we understand the late victorian era to be marked by pronounced racism right uh, and and we're well aware of what that racism looked like is uh, especially in uh, you know in 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 terms of british politics i mean british politics in this era was was close to women so you can only imagine how closed it was meant to be at least for people who are not white uh, as well uh, and in spite of this um, you know naroji is able to once again through i think sheer dint of effort and through uh, effective networking overcome a lot of the obstacles uh, it certainly helped that he spoke english very well and he was quite knowledgeable of english issues but at the end of the day you know he was a foreign person uh, many people could not pronounce his name properly uh, there were a lot of stereotypes that people had about indians um, but uh, and and you know his campaign was marked by a great degree of, of racism Uh, various racist scops thrown toward him uh, by everyone i mean everyone from the prime minister of britain uh, down to you know uh, you know the average constituent on the street but the interesting thing that at least i found in my research is that you know yes there was this stream of racist activity but there was also an anti-racist stream as well uh, in the sense that there were a lot of people who were reacting to the racism they saw around themselves in the late victorian era and said this is wrong and we need to build better world and uh, therefore were very encouraging of someone like naroji uh, and these many of these people also were quite sympathetic towards indian political demands uh, because they themselves wanted reform uh, in their own sphere in great britain so you know i'm talking about women suffragists uh, i'm talking about people who uh, are hoping to expand uh, the uh, you know the electorate to include workers uh, to you know include people who are of of you know who are who are poorer uh people who are hoping to you know secularize education um all of these people kind of saw indian nationalism kind of fit into this broad umbrella along with things like irish nationalism or uh you know socialism these were this this was kind of the progressive horizon of the late um victorian era uh, and therefore since naroji fit into that and since indian nationalism fit into that as well it had a fighting chance in electoral politics because a lot of these guys were also contesting uh seats in parliament as were many other indians i mean you know we have to remember naroji was not the first indian uh to uh, to to stand for election in great britain uh, that was lal mohan ghosh in 1885 and he literally came within uh you know a f- not a few votes but you know a few dozen votes uh, of you know maybe 100 or 2 votes of of winning so he he came close uh so there was already a precedent of you know unusual so to speak candidates uh contesting um and you know again since this was a man who was not want to give up um you know he tried for literally a, you know nearly 4 years 
uh, on this campaign effort. And, you know, eventually, one by one, all of his opponents within the Liberal Party fell away. Uh, and he, he won, as we know, by five votes. So it was a narrow victory, but it was victory nevertheless. Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the most highlighted parts of Naoroji's life is his theory of the drain of wealth. Uh, something that everyone knows uh, knows him for. So my question on the drain of wealth is three parts. Um, first is, to, to ex- I would want you to explain what the theory is all about. Uh, second is, how did he arrive at the conclusion of the theory and what was the process of developing this theory? And the third part is, uh, you know, what were the impacts of such, uh, such a proposition that, and what were the reactions to this theory, both in UK and, and in India? So the drain theory does not begin with Naroji. Uh, you know, there's, there's a much longer prehistory, uh, or I should say history of, of, the, of the drain theory in the sense that, uh, you know, there, there are people observing it as late as, uh, sorry, as early as say the late 1700s in Bengal. Uh, people, you know, British officials noticing the, uh, you know, the, the, the Bengal famine, for example, uh, noticing the, the devastating effects of colonial rule upon the, the textile economy. Uh, and then eventually, of course, uh, a, an, an Indian stream of thought develops. I mean, we, we have, you know, examples here and there of Indians who are thinking about uh, what was happening to the Indian economy under colonialism. Unfortunately, a lot of that material has been lost. It's much more difficult to piece together what Indians were thinking than what Britons were thinking, because those British people, their papers were kept much better. Um, but we do know that, you know, by the 1840s, when Naroji was um, uh, in school in Elphinstone, there, there were some of his fellow students who were a little older than him, who were Marathi speaking, uh, and they were talking about something like the drain. Uh, in, they, they had actually formed a secret society that they called, they, they called it. And they, they were writing in, in local papers, they were debating uh, ideas of a drain of wealth. Uh, and they were in conversation with, with a much larger discussion of how colonialism had destroyed, say, the textile economy, uh, how incidents of famine had increased under British rule. Uh, so Naroji picks up on this on this uh, this heritage, and and he he definitely acknowledges it. I mean, you know, in the the first paper he delivers on the drain of you know that touches on the drain of wealth, which was in 1867, he begins by saying, "Look, when I was in school, I remember these uh, uh, you know Maharashtrian fellow students talking about." something like a drain. Um, and, you know, therefore, you know, he goes to, 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 to set out his ideas. And, and his particular idea on the drain was that, uh, look, as out of all the, the revenue that was being collected in India every year, um, a certain portion of that revenue, and, and the revenue, of course, is being collected by the government, a certain portion of that revenue did not get recycled back into the Indian economy. Uh, it was taken back to Britain uh, through various forms, right? Con- control of currency, exchange rate, uh, and through um, things that were called home charges, um, you know, or expenses paid basically for quote unquote services rendered by uh, by the British government uh, in in the colonial uh, system. Uh, so you know, he was basically proposing that therefore you know the economy is grow- is 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 decreasing by about twenty five percent every year in India, uh, or at least the, the the flow of 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 revenue being collected is is being decreased, uh, which is a pretty startling. Uh, charge to make, right? I mean, you're you're laying at the door of of, Brit- of of British imperialism this charge that you're you're you know you're you're siphoning you know that much money every year. Um, but on top of that, you know, he talked about kind of like a cascading series of effects uh, that took place when so much money was taken out of the economy. Uh, people who were already at you know kind of the the edge of starvation 
uh, people who already had barely enough money to, to you know, eat and, you know, uh, clothe and, you know, let them live in a place with a, a modicum of respect were with the slightest change in, say, you know, weather patterns or you know, in terms of natural disasters uh, pushed into, into starvation. So that explained things like uh, like famines, right? I mean, why are famines occurring under British rule? Because people are already so poor that the smallest thing will push them into uh, into starvation. Uh, so it was a multi-pronged uh, idea in the sense that not only was India getting poorer, but it was getting poorer uh, because um, you know people were already destitute, and you know this this cyclical uh, you know uh, poverty of India was 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 pushing more and more people into a position where they could die of starvation, and it, it was also handicapping things like any form of proper capital development in India. There was a reason why uh, you know. Big industrial factories uh, had difficulty setting up in India because there just was no capital there, very little at least, and most of the active, you know, working capital was being sucked away into into a foreign country. Uh, so the last part of your question, in terms of how it was received, um, I mean, in the 1860s and 1870s, it was regarded as almost heretical, uh, in the sense that there were many kind of angry letters to the editors in in papers in Britain, people basically charged him with being seditious or treasonous. Um, the dominant idea, of course, in Britain at this time was that imperialism was good. Uh, there was a reason why the British were going out and colonizing the world because supposedly the British were, were spreading civilization and enlightenment and improving the economies. And, and Naroji was really the first colonial subject to say, no, not, nothing doing. Uh, the exact opposite is happening. So you can imagine the amount of pushback that he received. Uh, but there were, again, some people who agreed with him. I mean, there were socialist figures like Henry Hinman, uh, who, you know, the, the whole process of being converted to a social socialist frame of mind came in part from reading about what was happening in India. Uh, and people like Hinman became, you know, great proponents of the drain of wealth theory, uh, you know, even after Naroji had, had left the scene. Uh, so there were people who took up the idea. And, and as we all know, it, it was taken up uh, later on by uh, generations of nationalists, including you know, people like Nehru and, and Gandhi. This drain theory had a, had a very long legacy in terms of Indian nationalism. Oh, um, okay. So uh, while he was in, in UK as, his, uh, you know, as an MP, what were his duties like in the office uh, of being an MP? And uh, you know, what was his life like being an activist in the UK, you know, giving voice to colonial subjects? Uh, sees away, lands away. Yeah. Yeah. So when Naroji entered parliament, uh, I mean, he was the member for Central Finsbury, a constituency in central London that was um, working class, relatively poor, uh, quite progressive, uh, also uh, quite Irish. Uh, so it was a diverse uh, uh, region. Uh, but he also styled himself as member for India. So, you know, he took on the, the duties toward his constituents as well as uh, potentially 250 million people who had no representation in, in India. And on top of that, Indians in the diaspora, uh, places like South Africa or, or uh, Guyana in, in, uh, um, in South America, actually wrote to him and said, we regard you as, your, your, as our MP and our representative too. So <laughs> there was a, a huge responsibility he took upon his shoulders. Um, and so consequently, his, his uh, work responsibilities were multifold. I mean, you know, firstly, with regard to his constituents in, in central Finsbury, uh, you know, he did the day-to-day -day activities that we would expect any representative to do. If, if someone had difficulty uh, dealing with the bureaucracy or getting certain paperwork done, he'd help them. Uh, I recall coming through correspondence where, you know, uh, worried parents, you know, would try to get Naroji to help get their sons 
excused from military duty, uh, you know, relieved from uh, duty on the Navy. Um, Sometimes Nauruji would uh, help uh, local street vendors. You know, I mean, we're all familiar with street vendors here in, in the subcontinent, but Great Britain had these also, and they were called costermongers. Uh, and they were essentially, again, poor people who would sell fruits and vegetables on the street. And um, sometimes they'd come across municipal authorities, which would try to get them to disperse. And Nauruji took the side in, in central Finsbury and tried to defend their rights. Uh, he also did things like help, um, you know, draft legislation for reforming municipal governance in, in London, uh, and also things like helping build part of the of the, the Tower Bridge in in uh, in London. So the next time, you know, anyone is in London, uh, if you look, you know, the, the, the southern approach to uh, Tower Bridge, you know, close by to City Hall, uh, Nauruji was one of the the MPs who helped push through a bill to get that thing completed. Uh, so you know, he left a, a, a very tangible legacy on the ground uh, as a, a member of, of, of parliament for a British constituency. Uh, but for Indians, broadly uh, speaking, I mean, that's where the bulk of his responsibilities lay. And in the sense that, uh, you know, he tried to push through civil service reform, as, as is covered in my book, you know, he, he actually won, but was defeated by his own government in, in pushing through the, the type of reform that he, he hoped to uh, receive. But he was also in many ways a loudspeaker. Uh, in the sense that he voiced the demands of his you know, fellow Indians, wherever they were in the world, uh, in parliament and outside of parliament. Uh, so whenever Gandhi wanted uh, to broadcast what was going on in South Africa to the Indian community, uh, he would write to Nauruji. And Nauruji would uh, you know, bring this up with uh, officials in Great Britain, in the colonial office, in the India office, and in the media. Um, if uh, you know, the, the affairs of uh, Indians in any other part of the diaspora were in question, he'd bring them up as well. So, I mean, I found a letter from uh, a group of uh, Gujarati merchants living in Madagascar uh, around 1892 or 1893. And you know, there were probably only a few thousand of them at this time, but they also wanted help because Madagascar, which was you know, in the French kind of the, the, the French uh, uh, region of influence at the time, uh, British subjects were, were being harassed and Indian subjects were technically British. So, you know, Nairoji was able to help them to a degree also. But the bulk of the work was advertising why India was so poor and why India needed some sort of political reform. Uh, and consequently, his advocacy became much more radical as, it, as you know, time moved along uh, when he was in parliament. I mean, by the time uh, 1895 rolls around, you know, his last few months in parliament, uh, he's comparing Indians to uh, the slaves in, in the South in America. Uh, he's calling Indians the poorest people in the world. Uh, he's looking at Gladstone pretty much in the face and saying, uh, you know, you're basically shackling us. Uh, you know, take off our shackles and allow us to be free. Uh, so it, it was quite gutsy. Um, and, you know, I mean, unfortunately, it probably helped him uh, lose election. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, giving Indians a voice in Parliament was, was quite a, you know, a, a gutsy thing to do in this era. Definitely. Uh, so what were the kind of efforts uh, that Nauruji put into the national movement in India? And something that uh, I really wanted to understand was the evolution of the idea of Swaraj. Uh, yeah. How it changed from his time to all the way until uh, even after World War. And by the time we gained independence, how this idea of what India would look like, or what kind of, you know, what is the idea of Swaraj that uh, we had that evolved from the time of Nauraji, even before Nauraji to, uh, you know, even Gandhi and until we receive independence. So tell us yeah. a bit about that. So this is actually a good opportunity to, to talk a little bit about Nauraji's limitations uh, and, and Nauraji's critics. Uh, so 
Naoroji spent a good bulk of the time between approximately 1855 and 1907 in Great Britain. Um, he was in India for, for stretches of time, but you know the majority of the time he was in Great Britain. Uh, and while he was in India, he did things like help establish the Indian National Congress. You know, he was one of the, the founders of the organization in 1855. And of course, in 18, uh, sorry, in 1885. And of course, in 1885, Swaraj was not, you know, it was not on the picture officially. Nevertheless, we do have some evidence that, at least on the side, he was talking about something like Swaraj uh, by this time. I mean, we do know that in 1884, uh, Nauruji for the first time broached the idea of self-government uh, for India in a public forum. That's extremely early, right? 1884 is, is a time when the vast majority of, of Indians with any political inclination are not talking about anything like self-government. Nauruji is doing it. Um, in the Congress, the early Congress, the early Congress officially uh, stayed far, far away from any ideas like self-government. I mean, it officially declared itself to be very loyalist and Nauroji did as well. Uh, you know, in, in 1886, when Nauroji was president of the Congress in Calcutta, he, you know, he began his speech by talking about how, you know, he and his fellow Indians were loyal. They were subjects of, of, uh, of Great Britain, they were subjects of the Queen, and they were proud of it. So this does not seem nationalist on the surface at all. Um, but I think it's important to realize what people were saying in public and, you know, what they were saying in private and, you know, how that difference was navigated. And, and certainly in private, Nauruji was, was holding far more advanced views. Now, as far as the term Swaraj, I mean, Nauruji is obviously not the first person to use the term. I mean, the, the idea of Swaraj, the terminology, of course, can be traced back to someone like Shivaji. Uh, and it was popularized by Tilak, uh, probably starting around 1898 onwards. So Nauruji was not the first person uh, to talk about uh, Swaraj with relation to Indian self-government vis-a-vis uh, British colonial rule. Uh, but Nauruji's significance was uh, making Swaraj, you know, an official goal of the Congress, uh, which is what he does in 1906 when he's president of the Congress. Um, you know, again, by 1905, 1906, the Congress is very divided. Uh, should they support something like Swaraj or should they, you know, uh, take a more moderate tack and things like the Swadeshi movement had started, which, which was, again, pulling the Congress in different directions ideologically. And Naroji said, look, you know, we have this moderate heritage. We've talked about loyalty in the past, but let's be frank. I mean, our goal is Swaraj, um, you know, and he left it very open ended, uh, you know, within the empire or what he said, like, you know, Swaraj like Great Britain, which at least I've interpreted in the book to mean, you know, full independence, which is something the Congress only really fully endorses only by 1930 with the, the, the Purn Swaraj declaration. But this idea of Swaraj, when Nauroji voices it, uh, really galvanizes the radical uh, you know, stream within nationalism. We, we see people like Tilak, uh, Lala Lajpat Rai, and others emboldened, uh, because now you know, a figure who's been so dominant within the Indian Congress uh, has himself thrown his weight behind Swaraj. And, and even people like Gokhale had been very hesitant uh, to public su publicly support it. And now, you know, Gokhale Sr. himself was uh, supporting the concept of Swaraj. But as I said, this is also a good opportunity to look at the limitations of Naroji's political views. Uh, people like Tilak were writing to Naroji before the 1906 Congress and saying, look, you are in Great Britain. You don't understand how far things have advanced in India since you are last in the country. And, you know, Naroji had last been in the country uh, for a long period of time, probably you know as far back as 1893. So that's that's a long period uh, where you know he's not uh, you know he's not back in the country for a significant uh, amount of time. He made trips here and there, but you know still. Uh, so Tilak was essentially saying that look, if you were in India 
instead of spending your time in Britain, you're doing political work, obviously, in Britain. You're running for, you're, you're standing for parliament, you're advocating India's cause there. But if you were in India, you'd understand that the situation has changed uh, and that people like, you know, myself, you know, being, talking from Tilak's perspective, you know, are now making an earnest argument for going a step further than just, you know, demanding reforms, petitions, etc. We need something bigger. Um, so that was the major criticism that, and, and I think it's a valid criticism as well, um, that radicals were giving Naroji at the very end of his uh, political life. So um, how was he fit into this entire politics of Indian National Congress and uh, you know what was the kind of influence that he exercised in the in in, in the nationalist uh, movement circle here in India, especially. Well, the vast majority of his career, uh, you know, you could classify him as being, you know, probably the most radical member of, of the Indian National Congress. You know, up up until the eighteen nineties, uh, when people like Tilak and and all emerged. I mean, even people like Bipin Chandrapal. I mean, a lot of their political education had taken place under Naroji. Uh, when uh, Pal had gone to to to, to London, uh, you know he had he had worked with Naroji. I mean, he had spoken at engagements with Naroji, and it's only later that people like Pal actually break from Naroji and kind of start to criticize him. Uh, but towards the end of his political life, you know, starting from about maybe 1902 till about 1906, he kind of falls in between two positions. You know, he's mm-hmm. you know he's again he's always been regarded as this radical exponent of nationalism, kind of a few steps ahead of everyone else. But now radicals regard him, you know, a, a new group of radicals have emerged, people like Tilak and Lala Lajpat Rai and Apipin Chandrapal and Shamji Krishnavarma, uh, Shamji Krishnavarma and, and others. And they regarded Naroji as being too moderate. And they start to criticize him. Meanwhile, the moderates in the Congress, people like Gokhale and Firosha Mehta, are worried that he might be too radical. Uh, people like Ramesh Chandra Dutt. So he, he kind of doesn't satisfy other, uh, you know, either constituent here. Which is one reason why he selected to to um, uh, to lead the Congress in 1906 because he was you know a compromise candidate that both the radical and the moderate camps could agree upon. Um, and as I say in the book, you know I think he kind of gives like a, a parting gift to the radicals by talking about Swaraj. Um, and that you know legacy I think really kind of you know ensures his 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 broader legacy within Indian within Indian nationalism in general. I mean you know first of all he gives this impetus towards Swaraj and this idea of a clear, concrete political role, uh, but he frames it specifically in terms of things like the drain of wealth and Indian poverty. Uh, and, you know, that sets up in many ways the next state of, stage of nationalism where, you know, poverty does, you know, continue to get entrenched as the central um, element of why India deserves independence, right? By Gandhi, by Nehru. India was poor. Uh, the poverty was created by British colonial rule and therefore in order to, uh, you know, get rid of this curse of poverty, of, of, of poverty, Brit- uh, British rule had to end. Uh, so, I mean, you see a very clear legacy and you do see acknowledgements uh, by people like Nehru and Gandhi uh, all over the place uh, in terms of, you know, what the economic, le- uh, you know, the legacy of economic thought that people like Nehruji had bequeathed uh, to that generation. Yeah. Um, so what was the kind, you know, for someone to try and understand or have a perspective of Nehruji in today's world, what is the kind of relevance that he holds or his works hold to our current understanding of how we see India and the kind of progress we've made after 70 plus years of independence. Yeah, I, I think that the, the, multi, you know, the, the multiple ways to, to see Naroji's relevance uh, today in, in India or, or around the world, so to speak. I mean, uh, in the sense that, you know, this idea of the drain theory and the idea of poverty, uh, 
in India is still hotly debated, right? I mean, there's still people who, who debate the whole concept of the drain of wealth and debate causes of poverty in India. Um, but, uh, you know, Naruji was not just trying to advocate why, you know, through an academic study, why poverty existed. He's, he, he also, in, in his work, he was making the argument that poverty was the central reason for, uh, you know, political reform. Uh, and that, you know, unfortunately remains the same in India. I mean, obviously, huge strides have been made in eradicating poverty. And we're, we're not talking about a, a situation now where, you know, vast tracts of the country live on, on the edge of mass famine every few, few years. But, you know, face it, right? I mean, India still has, you know, terrible levels of poverty. Um, and, you know, the commitment towards poverty eradication and the efficaciousness of uh, the effic sorry, the efficacy of, of uh, you know, efforts to, uh, uh, to, to mediate that poverty uh, are things that I think still, you know, need to be emphasized, right? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the goal of uh, the policy goal should be ultimately to try to lift up the, the poorest people. Uh, in India, and we, we we really need to think about you know whether our policies are doing that right. Uh, you know, has this, the the economic structure that India has had since independence, and you know again since 1991, 92, has it helped? You know, and in what ways can we reform uh, politics to 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 further along the process of of of, of poverty uh, reduction? Uh, the other aspect, I think, is again with regard to the type of uh, politics he brought to to nationalism. I mean. You know, the nationalism of Naruti's era was quite liberal uh, and it was very global uh, in the sense that it did not, you know, trump arguments like, you know, India was, you know, civilizationally better. And therefore, that's the reason why we need some form of independence. Uh, you know, it, 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 it saw Indian uh, political rights being linked to the rights of disenfranchised people all around the world. Uh, it did not try to make the case that Indians were better or that particular Indians were better, right? I mean, it, it was very broad-based. It was very cooperative. Uh, so, you know, that explains why Nauruji was also, you know, aghast by things like the development of communalism, especially, you know, when the cow protection riots take place in India in 1893. I mean, he comes out very strongly against it. Uh, he tries very hard to make sure that, uh, you know, a significant amount of Muslims remain engaged within the Congress to kind of counter this idea that, um, uh, the Congress was was only an upper caste Hindu organization, so so he was very committed to kind of a, a very broad based, open minded type of Indian uh, politics, which he called nationalism, which is of course very different from the type of nationalism we see nowadays, whether we're in India or you know the United States or Great Britain or many other parts of the world. So I think there, there there's a case to be made for revisiting these liberal figures uh, and you know kind of reviving some of the ideas. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, what, what do you think, you know, uh, led to this, uh, you know, wh where people like Nauroji or early nationalist figures are not concentrated much on or their legacies are not much pondered upon? And, uh, you know, what has actually led for people to concentrate more on the later nationalists, people like Gandhi and Nehru and Patel, uh, yeah. but not on people who actually build the foundations of the nationalist movement. Uh, why has the popular understanding of the people, you know, shifted or, or has completely kind of ignored uh, that section of uh, leaders? The dominant narrative is that early Indian nationalism, you know, the nationalism before Gandhi, uh, at least the dominant popular narrative, I should say, was, was, was relatively ineffective. It didn't do much. It was not terribly popular. You know, it was largely confined to a, a group of English-speaking elites 
who largely debated amongst themselves and did not get much stuff done. Um, and it was only really after Gandhi entered into the picture uh, that nationalism really started. I mean, so much so that I remember several of my peers in, in graduate school uh, talking about something called proto-nationalism, you know, nationalism before nationalism, so to speak. And you know, I kind of stopped them in the, in the tracks and said, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, you can trace nationalist ideas back to, you know, the 1840s, 1850s, depending on how you define nationalism. It's, it's very hard to say something is proto-nationalist and something is, is nationalist. Uh, so that's been the dominant narrative. And I really would like to help push back against that narrative. Uh, because yes, I mean, obviously Indian nationalism was not as popular as it was under Gandhi. Obviously, there's no question about it, but it was still quite popular. Uh, you know, it was more popular than we think it was. Uh, you know, as early as the 1880s, people like Alan Octavian Hume are convincingly showing evidence that, you know, the Congress party is holding elections in India where the electorate is already larger in size than the electorate of Great Britain. I forget what the exact figure is, but maybe around, you know, somewhere on the order of five to 10 million people. Um, were voting in Congress elections, you know, for, for you know, for, for essentially being elected to be a delegate to a Congress, Congress session. So, you know, this, this habit of democracy was already being inculcated. Uh, things like, you know, um, participation of women were being discussed. The, the first women delegates in the Congress, I think, were in 1889 in Bombay. Uh, so there was already discussion about, you know, the role of women uh, in, in politics in, in India, which is, of course, very early in comparison to any other place in the world. Um, and things like, you know, judicial reform, police reform, the importance of a free press, uh, the importance of freedom of speech, these were all being discussed. Uh, so I really think in many ways that early national, nationalism is quite central to the story of how India got its independence. But, but I can understand at the same time why uh, people like Gandhi and Nehru and Patel and others dominate the story, right? Because, I mean, they were the last generation. And, and of course, I do not mean to diminish their, their, their accomplishments in any way or form. I mean, you know, they, they, are, they are known legitimately for what they did because, you know, they, they achieved, they actually achieved independence, which was, you know, dreamed of for, for, for generations. I mean, people in Nauruji's generation did not think independence would occur for India for another 100, 150 years. And, and yet, you know, within, you know, a few decades after Nauruji's death, India was, was free. Uh, so, I mean, there are reasons, but of course, there also are political reasons why certain people are favored in, in the narrative today uh, in India. So what would you or what do you think, you know, people should do or one like I, I particularly believe the onus falls on, uh, you know, people who are actually in schools, people who are teaching us history from where we actually get our understanding of history for to tell us more about these figures. But what do you think, uh, you know? one should do as someone who's enthusiastic about history not only that but also someone who uh, teaches history uh, like yourself to bring these people or these kind of figures into the popular narrative to kind of tell that everything is not black and white and you know it's not everything to be put in squares it's just a whole array of colors and there's a whole spectrum to look at that is pretty much exactly what I was telling my class yesterday. <laughs> you know, I, I, I teach in a business school and, and most of our students have engineering backgrounds. And, you know, I, I, I'm starting to teach them a history course and I'm, I'm trying to say, look, with history, you can get a better flavor of the grays in between blacks and whites, right? It's not, the world does not exist in a binary uh, stasis, right? I mean, there, there's lots of, you know, space in between. Um, and I, I think the best way to, to kind of nuance the perspective is again, you know, to kind of take the narrative that we all get in grade school about history, whether it is American history or Indian history or British history, what have you, 
um, and you know uh, talk about what's right and you know what's wrong and you know what potentially could be right and wrong and what 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 else is missing in this narrative. Um, you know, I I grew up in the U.S., so I'm 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 sensitive to the narrative that I grew up uh, learning in grade school in the U.S. that I later discovered was was not necessarily true, and I know of course the same thing of course in India. So I mean, for anyone who is interested in this topic, read broadly. I think that's that's the the best advice I can give. I mean, read authoritative figures. I mean, there, there's a lot of history that's written that's not very good. Uh, you know, not terribly authoritative, uh, and we seem to have had a problem with that recently. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, there's a lot of very good work and a lot of readable work that's being produced as well. Read widely, read broadly, uh, be skeptical about what you read, always kind of question and doubt, think of biases in the particular work and, and use that to kind of come to, to your own judgment of what you think uh, is right and wrong about history. I mean, don't just parrot what someone else has said or what you remember from grade school. Uh, be inquisitive and be prepared to kind of, you know, change your mind if need be about what you learn. That's, that's wonderful. So to, to conclude, uh, my question is, what was one thing that fascinated you the most about Dadabai's life? Or has there been something that you found interesting or you found inspiring from uh, Naruji's life that you adopted in yours? Uh, was there some, or is, there some, is there a life lesson that you would uh, you know, tell people or teach people about from Naruji's life? You know, I, I don't think there's there's a lesson I've adopted myself since I'm obviously in a very different line of work from 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 him. Uh, but I, you know, I I think the the one really incredible thing about Naroji is that he just did not give up. You know, some people can describe him as being a little naive in the sense that you know he he believed literally to his dying day that eventually the British would see the wrongs of their way and you know act with justice toward India. Uh, you know, by the end of his life, he was starting to get very doubtful of this idea. And, you know, he spoke very vociferously against British rule for the, for the entire duration of his life. But he, he always kind of, you know, had faith in the good, in the goodness, uh, you know, in the good nature of, of humans uh, to realize their own wrongs and, and do the right thing. Uh, and that I think, you know, was part and parcel, worked part and parcel with his, uh, his desire to never give up on, on things. You know, the, there were many opportunities where Navaroji could have given up and just retired, right? I mean, right after he loses election, uh, you know, he's when he's you know about seventy years of age, he could have just retired and given up and gone back to India and enjoyed the last remaining decades of his life in retirement. But he didn't. He actually, uh, you know, recommitted himself uh, and made himself work harder and you know adopted more radical positions. Uh, so you know, that in turn makes him an interesting figure in the sense that he. He, he became more open-minded and more radical as he aged. Um, that's something, I, I guess, you know, if you're asking me what something that I adopted, or I mean, that's that's an idea at least I'd like to aspire to in life, you know, to make sure to not be more conservative and more close-minded as, as, as I grow older, but, you know, keep an open mind and, and constantly kind of interrogate new ideas and, and, you know, be open to new perspectives. I think that's one great life lesson for anyone. So, uh, so yeah, I think this brings us to the end of our interview. Uh, it, it was really nice, and thank you for making me feel so comfortable doing this interview. I was a little nervous to start with, uh, but it it was uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you, everyone, for joining in for today's episode. We've come to the end of our podcast. If you liked our work, please consider sharing and subscribing to our channel, and please consider sharing it with your family and friends. 
You can check out more of our work at www.indiacolonize.com and you can follow us on all social media websites, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook where we give all our updates. Many more interviews like these with authors and scholars of the subcontinent history are to follow. Quite many of them will be live and quite many of them recorded. We hope you enjoy them and if you want quick updates on what we are going to do next, please consider following us on our social media sites so that you remain updated about our next task. We hope you have a good day. Until next time, stay curious, stay safe.